0: In partnership with 2SER 107.3, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of 4th Estate. 4th Estate is a weekly program about the media featuring some of Australia's leading journalists, broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3.
1: Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate for the week beginning the twenty first of July, two thousand and fourteen. James Bourne with you this week, We're broadcasting right across the community radio network, right across the country. And thanks for your company this week and providing me with some company in our Sydney studio. We have Piers Ackerman, columnist for the Daily Telegraph, Lee Dayton, a freelance science reporter and broadcaster, and Damon Meredith from uh, Sunrise on Channel Seven. Thank you all for joining us. Good evening, this week. James. Love it to have you here. Um, Look, we might as well get straight underway with the big news of the week, which is, of course, the terrible disaster in Ukraine. MH17 Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 lost almost 300 crew on board, shot down, it would seem, by an anti-aircraft missile. Of course, they're still in contention. Coverage on the whole, I think, quite measured, um, quite matter-of-fact in the developing periods. Um, and indeed maybe more measured than the response of many in government around the world. I guess that's to be expected. But in the hours after the crash, questions begin to be asked about the way the media's reacted to this. And uh, the first question I think I'd like to put to the panel tonight is, do we think that um, some journalists and media outlets maybe crossed the line between news value and sensationalism in the images that they published, the graphic images? Or do we think that was potentially unavoidable? We might go to to Damon, of course, who was reacting to this as it developed on Sunrise on Saturday morning.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it was such a, you know, an emotional news event to, to have spring up at you and, and and we were kind of, you know, trying to figure out how to put into pictures, of course, in television and I've seen a lot of, you know, the different coverage and I think it's quite important to think with images, you know, are, are you either using these images, you know, for corroboration, which is, you know... To support the story that you've got going there, like the image will show the same as the words you're putting to air, um, and that's typically how most images are used, uh, but sometimes they're not necessary in that in fact, and um, the more the powerful images can be in in revealing something that you know maybe the the text or the words don't get to and I think sometimes if if there's a news story that you know says there's three hundred people dead, you know sometimes you you don't need to see those people, sometimes you need to see. The surround. Sometimes you need to see the little village where it's happening, or or the people you know who are devastated and distraught by this ha- happening in their in their backyard. So, what
1: judgments did you make over at sunrise? Was it to actually just take the raw footage as it came in, or were you quite specific about the way that you edited it editorially?
2: We we did make sure that like we just had the rule that there was no no bodies. Um, we pretty much just used images of on on the ground, like the the wreckage. Um, but, I mean, it, it it's such an interesting thing. Like, these photos, when, when you have a, you know, a photo in journalism, how much do you really analyse it? How much do you think, what is this photo telling me? Is it just there, you know, to, to give me some context or is it actually trying to explain something? So, um, I think it's been... I think, as you said at the beginning, it's been, on the whole, fairly well-managed, but there are always improvements that could be
1: made. I guess you and I are both newcomers by comparison when we look around the room, Um. Is this the type of disaster that's maybe a bit without precedent in, in terms of the way that the site of the crash has been managed um, and the fact that journalists, in many cases, got there before authorities, as we understand them? Piers, I mean. Well, look, I, I, I'm not um, too unhappy with
3: the coverage to date. I think it's been. Uh, a very broad-spectrum coverage. Mm -hmm. I know that there was criticism uh, of uh, some of the photos showing, uh, I think, two bodies from the weekend. Uh, There were three letters in The Australian this morning, Um, uh, and The Australian had a small editorial in defence of those. I think that the enormity of this crime, and there's no doubt it is a crime, we have a civilian aircraft which was targeted and shot down. Okay, so somebody may be in error, but... uh, uh, no, nonetheless, a, a crime against humanity has been committed. Um, but the 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 imagery of the bodies we saw uh, with nine uh, eleven, uh, some photos or uh, or footage, indeed of, of bodies jumping for people people jumping. Let's not call them bodies; these are no. humans uh, jumping from the from the World Trade Center towers. And I think that uh, as searing as these images are. It is ultimately extremely important for us not to sugarcoat what is the reality, and uh, and I and I I I know that they're disturbing. Uh, I'm sure that I I actually uh, couldn't sleep at all on uh, I think right through Friday into Saturday morning. Um, I had looked at a lot of the raw footage and a lot of the photographs. It's very troubling. And well, that's right. And I think, and I think that that but that that coverage was balanced to uh, to an enormous degree by uh, as heart-rending as they were the images of the children and it reminded me of the Beslan massacre um, when we saw uh, the Chechen uh, terrorists take uh, or slaughter some 300 mainly school children there and 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 my uh, my mind immediately sprang back to the extraordinary photographs of that Bessler massacre because so many of those children had gone back on that day it was I think the 1st of September uh, 10 years ago Uh, so uh, uh, 2004 so these were kids in their best because it's the ritual and many of them were carrying apples, and their parents, had, proud parents, had taken photographs of them heading off to school in these beautiful handmade clothes and stuff mm. like that. And, of course, there were photos, which I'm old enough to remember, you probably don't, of a, of a, a one of the survivors, a, a girl called Katerina, coming out later on, clutch a bloody hand, clutching a small gold cross, which became the photo of that, that went around the world. And... As horrified as we may all be, um, I think that uh, our job is to actually reflect what is the reality. And as I said before, um, we can't uh, bowdlerise these things. Um, uh, unfortunately, the crimes are of such enormity that uh, from time to time we we have to set aside traditional rules and say the world needs to see it. Mm. Needs
1: to see truth. Would would you agree with that, Lee?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I agree with what both of you are saying. And just a, a very quick comment from my perspective. Um, it's interesting what you're saying about various atrocities, various uh, destructive events, whatever it may be, there's usually an image that tends to symbolize it. As you were speaking, I was thinking of that famous image of the child running down the road oh, in the Vietnam. me yeah, mask, yeah. you know, with the just horrible. And then, yeah. you know, so each one, and as you say, the, the falling images out of the building in 211. And mm. then, for me, the the image that I keep seeing that to me is now epitomizing this particular event is not a person, which no. is unusual, because usually it's the cowling of that aircraft uh, that we're seeing on the edge. Well,
3: I, I, see, I see these, uh, the sunflowers. I see the oh, sunflowers the sunflowers, the sunflowers, going through the you know, sunflowers. And I just yeah. think that... Uh, it's almost a Van Gogh painting, and, it is. and this will this this will, this is what I uh, had these nightmares about the other day, of the the corpses in the sunflower f- oh, field. Oh, it's sh- shocking. Uh, it's, um, it's Let
0: me t- tell you, because I once worked for Quantum, and we did a I yeah. did a documentary with a fellow who was a um, forensic archaeologist that led mm. the excavations in Srebrenica massacre, and also Australia's World War One. <laughs> Um, in France, in Formel. Yes. Oh, and Formel. You know, mm. No, well oh. he wasn't leading Formel. He was this was a few years back right. when quantum was going on. So he did the work in Srebrenica during oh, yes, the yes, U- yes. Yugoslav Civil War. And then he also did the excavations for the case against Australia's Nazi war criminal. Oh right. And right. the images, you know, we had to deal with the images. This was television yeah. over and over yeah, and sure. over. And the shots we had, you know, somebody sitting in a grave mm. with a notebook looking at skeletal remains or, you know, the, the photos, you know, the live images, the footage of people going into the camps. And we know what's going to happen. They're all going to be massacred. It was horribly, horribly Traumatic, And at the mm. end of it, we all, I think, had post-traumatic shock syndrome. And in fact, the producer working on that, I was the, the reporter, writer, ended up, you know, he said that his family had escaped. So for him, it was this double whammy. But just to say that the power of the image. And so in my mind, when I think of those those atrocities, I now have those images in my mind. They They say something to me. And that's what a really good image does. It doesn't just tell you the facts. It, yeah. it tells you what that story is about.
3: But Lee, the, those you know, those absolutely heart-wrenching photos of the, the little family portraits of the children mm. from Western Australia. I think some oh, yeah. of them the whole were. family with mm. grandparents, the, the and family and the grandchildren. and and mm. you you know they they just. They're just the kids. They're the kids next door, cleaned and scrubbed and polished for a birthday party or a, a christening or something. That's special. the
0: tragedy of any disaster. And
3: uh, I don't know, as as a father and I guess just as a, 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 a regular person, it it makes it makes me want to weep. It
1: really does. You're listening to Fourth Estate. Well, since we last talked, the government has fulfilled one of its key election promises to scrap the carbon tax, and of course. Many parts of the media took glee in its axing, others not so much, in equal value. Uh, Those who took glee, I think the Daily Telegraph, who uh, on their front page essentially showed Tony Abbott dancing on the grave of the carbon tax as Labor and Greens luminaries mourned. Um, And it would be fair to say that the media played a not insignificant role in shaping the public debate on climate change and the carbon tax as well, as much as the government did themselves. Um, But this week, coverage of climate change has been up for debate. We've had discussions about... Uh, the the value of news and the intersection between accuracy and impartiality on coverage of climate change. I'd like to read this comment from Bob Ward um, about uh, a review that was done at the BBC. He says, It's clear the BBC is harming the public interest by sacrificing accuracy for impartiality in its coverage of climate change. And uh, it should, in fact, use the report that was handed down as an opportunity to correct its flawed approach and improve its service to the public... Are we giving climate change sceptics too much free reign, as Bob Wood would say? Well,
0: I'll start, I'll dive in, because we'll probably have a fight about this. You know, I personally, having been a science writer and broadcaster for over a quarter of a century, I tend to separate the science from the policy initiatives. So... To me, it's very important that when you're just you're discussing the latest science, you know the implications, how it's all coming together, you talk to people that are trained but might have a range of views in it. But when you're talking about the policy responses, that's fair game, bring in whoever you want, and they can they can say whatever they have to say. but if you can't solve a problem unless you understand what the fundamentals are, and so in that regard, I agree it's very important to keep your your editorial different from your news coverage and your policy, separate from your science reporting. It is
1: a very broad question, and as well as you can answer it, please try to. Is the public informed or misinformed about climate
0: change? Oh, largely disinformed.
1: And is that the media's fault?
0: Oh, in good part, yeah. Because we have a, a rather lopsided media at the moment. Um, if you, I was adding it up, and I think Rupert Murdoch owns or controls over 80% of all the media outlets in this country.
3: Oh, I don't think that print. the... If you look at reach, uh, Lee, you'd find that the ABC's audience was far greater. I'd, I, perhaps, uh, I hope so. I'd well, like to would, think that would there would be this balance. But I think that in, with this client's debate, uh, the public has largely been let down by the so-called the scientific institutions because... If you, uh, if, because so much of the debate has been based on modelling which has been based on, on science to a degree but the modelling in itself has not been very good um, because very little, in, in fact none, I would suggest, of the forecasts that were made uh, in the 90s, if you go back to the, uh, uh, the, the time of the, the orig- when the IPCC put out its first reports and so forth, pre-Copenhagen and, and so on, you will find that the scare tactics that the scientific community fed into those reports um, have really backfired on them. I mean, we had uh, Tim Flannery, who was head of the uh, the uh, commission. Surely a
0: mixed blessing, I'd agree with you. There. The, you know, the, <laughs> the gu- climate well, commission. But yes.
3: hold on, he was he was a head of the climate commission, mm. and if it, w- we all know that he predicted Australia would be in drought. This was before they had the, the lethal floods in Queensland. That um, uh, you know, he made so many wrong uh, 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 forecasts that. It would take take the rest of the program to go through them all. So I, I think that the public has been done a huge disservice. I don't blame the media at all. I blame the people who were pushing an agenda which hasn't been supported by their own forecasts.
1: So you're saying there's a trust deficit because of the scientific research, not because of the way the media's portrayed that science?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you had uh, organisations such as the ABC and Fairfax are rooting very hard for uh uh the the you know the the anthropogenic uh, global warming uh, uh theory mm. and, and and unfortunately um the the stuff that they were were saying just hasn't occurred But it's not just the a
2: b c and you know other institutions there's ninety seven percent of peer reviewed well, science articles in the past
3: yeah you know, decade but also unfortunately support uh, uh, unfortunately um the 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 peer reviewed stuff it's all highly theoretical.
0: No, it isn't. No, I have to jump in and okay. disagree with you there. All right, Here's, go on. No, I think I take your point about scientists not always communicating as effectively as they could. Mm. And I think having covered the climate change issue for, as I say, over twenty five years, and I don't want it to be true. I genuinely don't want it to be true, but I think the facts are building. Um, and yes, there was a lot, there were members of the scientific community that in the earlier days um, overstated it because I think they were terribly concerned. There are lots of different reasons, people's motivations. Flannery's not a climate scientist, so that's why I say he's a mixed blessing but i think that today the scientists and i still deal with them regularly because i write i cover for the journal science and in particular some of the issues coming out of australia the political issues i think that they are learning to communicate what can be confusing and disturbing to people in a more accessible way They're trying to go back and say, all right, let's look at the fundamentals of what we're talking about here. What are are the basic insights that are being used to make these statements? So I think that they are improving. I think that there is definitely – I worked for News Limited, as you know, um, and I enjoyed working there for many years. It was conservative, but it presented its information clearly, separated news and opinion. I think it's not doing that these days. And that is unfair because a lot of information gets recycled that isn't correct. It's just it's what the old argument is it's called confirmation bias, where you go back to the same places and you look at the same ideas. And no matter how many times scientists get up and explain away certain things and say, no, we've we've looked at that, we've argued about that, um, these things keep coming back in the media. So I do think that we have a problem with yes, scientists are not always the best spokesman. They're scientists. It's like asking artists to be great spokesmen, spokespeople for themselves. They're not always, that's not their expertise. They're learning. We also do have a media problem here in the sense that a lot of the media is more tabloid-oriented as opposed to just presenting facts and then debating that and looking at the alternatives. Now, I know you're going to want to jump in and just go slap, 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 slap. No, not but, at all, I, that's, I think that's that you're presenting what it. I see as, as someone who's worked mm. with the scientists, who's covered this issue across many media in different countries for different audiences.
1: But if we took Piers' assertion earlier that you know the modelling has been wrong from the 1990s up till now...
0: No, it hasn't. No, I mean that's completely incorrect. I disagree with you completely. Climate science, climate change is studied by a variety of mechanisms. You go out, you get observational data, you get atmospheric satellite data, you get land monitoring. You look at what records you can get from ships over the past for historical data. You go back through time and you get what are called proxies for climate change. You you get um, boreholes from the from Antarctica from. Mm. from uh, Iceland, various places. You also can look at what's gone on with, the, uh, with uh, coral in the Great Barrier Sea. There are other proxies like tree rings. And you can look at this, and you can get scientists know how to look at and determine the various types or isotopes of carbon that are in those samples so you know how much CO2 was in the atmosphere. You can go back through time, and you can see what was going on. In the past, we've had huge changes. exactly. But in the present, we have a different factor that's adding to the change effect, and that is we humans. And often I hear people say, well, we can't possibly be making enough difference to change the climate. Who who are we? Well, the first big major climate change on this globe was done by algae and single cell organisms. Mm -hmm. So if they can do it, certainly we can do it. But their
3: biomass has always been far greater and it probably and still is than the humans. But
0: leave. we're talking about an additional. I mean, that's a ridiculous, no, ridiculous
3: comparison.
2: No, I mean,
0: it is not. Can I just no. go back to sure. the
2: the um? I mean, the origin of the question, which was basically about whether the media's role in discussing this issue. And you know, one of the the issues that gets brought up a lot of the time is where is the balance in the debate, and why do we need balance? And you know, personally I don't think balance is a fundamental principle of journalism. I think truth is a fundamental principle of journalism, but balance is for one thing subjective. Who decides what the balance is? And if you have false balance, then that's pretty much distortion. I and I think, you know, a lot of the time in this in covering this debate there has been an attempt to pursue balance, but that it hasn't come through. And when you've got Scientists who are telling you about science, why aren't we listening to them? We listen to doctors when they tell us about medical things. We listen to physicists when they say that planes will stay up in the air. You know, for the majority of the time, we trust these people who are employed. This is their job to tell us this thing. And when the majority of them say
3: this is not an issue, this is not a debate,
2: why don't we understand that? You know, I sort of. But I
3: don't know about that, Damon, because I've, I find that, you could, that, that uh, for every scientist who takes Lee's point of view, you can find another equally qualified individual. No, you can't. Well, I, I think you can. No,
0: you can't. If you look at the science community, there are thousands of researchers looking at this problem around the world. Most of them agree, 97% plus agree. Well, I when think 86% you say,
1: of all statistics are wrong.
0: Well, yes, yeah. sure, that's and fine.
1: And s- 73% are made up, so, you know. <laughs> well,
0: that's all very well, but I think that when you've got the insurance agents looking at what the scientific community is saying, I think you've no. got something there. No, but the point being that we're talking about the expertise. As Damon said, if you're talking, you wanted to have a discussion about new treatments for brain tumours, you don't talk to a podiatrist. And it's the same thing here. If you want to understand the divergence of opinion within the community of intelligent people that research this competitively, Hmm. I think you talk to those people. If you then want to debate what you're going to do about it, you can say, I don't think we need to do anything.
3: Well, then you'd be familiar with the recent, in the last report, various of the warnings were downgraded.
0: No, so they weren't. several of them were upgraded as no, well.
3: No, well, no, what happened the, the, that we were The levels of, of uh, sea level rise uh, no, were downgraded. The, no, they weren't. Yes, they were. No,
0: I've got the journals yeah. in front of me. They were not. I've, got, I've but what gone you, through but the why, reports. That, I'm talking about subsequent to the IPCC. Oh. Now, what you might be listen, li, thinking of and alluding to, which was there were reports coming out saying that the increase is slowing. But we still are seeing an average rise. That's what climate change is. It's an average of temperatures. You know, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, it's cold out. You know, how can we have global warming? That's weather. That's what we see out the, out the window. They're talking about changes over time. And this is what the, the graphs are showing. There are factors that are affecting the speed of the acceleration of the warming, but it is still accelerating fact, not opinion. What we do about it is opinion. In in
3: as much as the BBC and everybody else is acknowledging there's been no global warming over the last 16 or 17 years. That's completely incorrect.
0: Uh. (laughs) That is complete nonsense, Piers. No, No, they do not. In 96, we had an El Nino year, and that's when we had a drop in the warming. Right. From then on, it's and that even then, if you look at a graph that starts at your bottom left, way at the bottom, well, in the corner, there's even arguing about where you should up start up.
3: the graph for these things. You know, uh,
0: I think you start with the Industrial Revolution, or well. to make this very, very more interesting, you could go back and look at the bubonic plague, because yes. there is some information that. When the bubonic plague killed off humans, we had a, that was part of what triggered some of the mini ice ages in North America or in Europe.
3: Oh, you <laughs> might as well talk about Krakatoa or
0: no, Krakatoa can, or had nothing to do. with I just, or, it. or
3: any of the other vulca- let, the, the big let volcanic jump explosions? In with us. I've got, let's 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 give about in the, the l- mini
0: ice age <laughs> and all of let's these. Let, no, time no, time. no,
3: no, no! You're throwing in. In, in
2: I'm this throwing in
0: supposition. No, they're facts. I read journal reports. Yeah. You don't. Let's
2: give okay. let's give Damon
1: the last word here. So,
2: thank you very much, James. So, <laughs> I mean, interesting thing today. It happens to be the 45th anniversary of the moon landing. That's um, right. So. There are quite a few number of people that would say the moon landings were fake, that they never happened, that it was all a conspiracy. But when we're talking about the moon landings, we don't get those conspiracy theorists in to talk about whether or not it was fake. We get the astronauts in, we get NASA in. If everyone at NASA says it happened, we generally tend to believe we landed on the moon.
0: And if you've talked to people who have in fact been to the moon, they will tell you they have been to the moon. Unless they're all lying, unless there's this great conspiracy...
3: In that case, is a... Well, it's that's a, a weird a- tangent, but I'll <laughs> let you go with
1: it. Look, We only have a couple of minutes left here, and uh, we will quickly try and fit in a couple of questions about the 50th birthday of The Australian, which occurred in the last week as well. Um, look, Tony Abbott was present at this gala dinner, gave a, a glowing endorsement, The Australian. He said John Howard had the paper to thanks for his elevation to the chop- top job. Um... But the current leader stopped short of crediting News Corp or any of its state-based stablemates for his own success and championed the masthead's objectivity and sought to debunk the myth that uh, it was Murdoch's editorial influence um, that sort of drove the the paper's uh, commentary. Um, what did we make of the Prime Minister's speech on Tuesday night, Dan?
2: Well, I mean, I agreed with certain aspects of it. You know, I tended to disagree with other aspects of it. I mean, there's no doubt we do need media diversity. The Australian is, you know, in many circumstances, a great paper. It's got a lot of very good journalists working for it. Um, You know, he said, for instance, that it's a gift to our nation and, you know... It's certainly a gift, whether we want to take... Like, what kind of gift it is, I guess, is up to individual interpretation. We've got kind of a lot of consideration at the moment about changing media ownership laws in this country, and I think, as you know, Lee pointed out at the very beginning of the show, there is a high concentration of media ownership in mm. Australia. I think 11 of the 12, you know, daily um, metro newspapers are owned either by News Corp or Fairfax. Uh, and this question of ownership is, um, is quite an important one, I feel, uh, especially as you see, you know, quite a lot of the time you don't know who's behind these organisations. You know, well, look, know, It's a
3: very, very simple thing, uh, Damon. Uh, if you want to own media, you can start a newspaper and there are uh, newspapers begging for new owners at the moment. You can start a television station, there are plenty of television stations at the moment, which could uh, stand an injection of capital and, and probably take control. Do you
2: think it's OK to have one person owning two television stations? Well, I think
3: it's OK to keep more journalists employed. Now, if you didn't have that person owning that group of newspapers, you'd have fewer newspapers in the country. Now, I know that people on the left say, well, we can do without newspapers. I mean, you're right, you're, actually, Piers. Well, I'm talking politically and I'm not talking about you. But uh, because I, I really don't care what your personal politics are, but the reality is that this whole uh, myth uh, uh, about Murdoch controlling his editors and insisting uh, on them running his line was absolutely debunked at that dinner, which I attended. And as any any journalist in this country knows, the the, the Australian supported Gough Whitlam um, and Rudd and, and and Rudd and Keating. Hmm and Uh, Hawke Fraser Hawke yes it may have gone for Hawke but I really can't recall Hmm. but but, but anybody who who understands the politics of media in this country would be aware that uh, at the time of the 2007 election the Australian was very hot for Kevin Rudd, Mr Murdoch wasn't and he made his views perfectly clear but the editor in chief went against him so I would think you, you, there is no better example uh, uh, that I can uh, you know, pull out of my, my ear uh, right now uh, than that to demonstrate that the editor's edit. Now, Mr Murdoch obviously puts the bill and he has an opinion. He has opinions on lots of things, mm. on, thi- on, on, on things that he has nothing to do with because he's a very successful guy. Now, I value his opinions, but I don't always agree with them. Uh, and nor do, nor do my columns, nor do the editorials in the newspapers reflect his views.
1: Well, we're quickly running out of time. About 30 seconds left. I'm very, very sorry to say that because we could have gone for another hour and a half. Oh, we used to PC. <laughs> <But I'm, laughs> until the sea levels rose, James. We could have <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be here for a century. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much all for your company. Piers Ackerman, columnist at The Daily Telegraph. Lee Dayton, freelance science reporter and broadcaster. And Damon Meredith, producer for Sunrise at Channel 7. Uh, My name's James Bourne. You've been listening to the 4th Estate produced here, the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And thanks, as always, to our excellent executive producer, Isabel Summerson. In the meantime, do take care. and We'll catch you next week.
0: Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's 4th Estate. 4th Estate is produced by 2SER 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm.